Now, since the time that I was growing up, all those years ago, whenever it was, <laughs> um, I think that the, the spiritual temperature um, of our country has changed a bit. I remember when I was a kid, the, the vast majority of people, I think, were functionally atheists. By that I mean they lived as though there, there was no God, that there was no spiritual realm. While you may have had more people who went to church, especially for special occasions, things like uh, Easter, Christmas, and while you might have had more people ticking the box on the census that they were a Christian, the reality was that practically everyone lived their day-to-day lives as though this world is all that there is. As though the only things that are real are the things that you can see and, and touch and experiment on in a science lab. When I was at school and, and university, you wouldn't really hear people talking about God or, or spiritual things. Material things were all that there was. And material things were all that mattered. But in recent years, I think that the spiritual temperature of our country has changed. That new atheist wave of Richard Dawkins and, and people like that has spent on the shore and in its wake is something different. I personally now see a, a, a spiritual openness, a belief in spiritual things that is much more widespread than I've ever seen before in my lifetime. But for lots of people there is a desire to experience something spiritual. But who is the, the God or the, the spirituality that people are turning to? God is in, in the universe making things happen. God is in each one of us. Often God isn't even part of the picture. It's, there's a more kind of general interest in, in spirituality, spiritual things. Or, or, or maybe God continues to be that benevolent character, ready to take us to a better place when we die. I'm not sure that that God ever disappeared, to be honest. I think he's always been around. And so, who is God continues to be an important question. And more and more people are asking it. And another really important question is this. How do we meet that God? I suspect that if you went to, into different churches around this town, you'd get a lot of different answers to that question. God is met in the formality of, of liturgy and ceremony and incense and, and grand buildings. Or, or God is accessible to us. We can meet him when we're good enough. Perhaps God is met in the midst of uh, loud music with the emotion turned up. Or, or God is met through other people in Christian community. Lots of answers. And then go outside the churches and you get more answers still. God is in our emotional experiences. God is to be found through the occult practices. He's to be found in the beauty of the physical world around us. I could go on. The, the range of um, answers to the question, who is God and how do we meet him, are not getting any smaller. And in truth, there is no more important question that we can answer in life. But the, the questions of who God is and how we meet him aren't ones that we can decide for ourselves. 
See, if we do that, what ends up happening is, is we make a God who, who fits into a box that we'd like him in. He ends up being a bigger version of ourselves. But if God is real, then he is who he is. That's not to be defined by us, it's to be revealed by him. And likewise, we are to meet him on his terms. In Grace Church, we've been working our way through the book of Exodus. And if you were going to boil the story of Exodus down to one thing, it's this. God's people being rescued by God to meet God. God's people being rescued by God to meet God. That's Exodus in a nutshell. And in Exodus chapter 19, that's our chapter for today, God's people meet God. We've reached the peak of the book. In Exodus chapter 19, we see who God is and we see how we meet him. But to truly answer um, those questions, we need to trace this story through time to see how it's fulfilled in Jesus. And so let's just uh, get stuck in because there's a lot for us to see. The first thing we see in Exodus chapter 19 is this. We meet a God who keeps his promises. We meet a God who keeps his promises. Let me just turn with me to Exodus chapter 19. Um, it's on page 76 of the Bibles on the table if you've got one of those. Exodus chapter 19. And I'm going to read uh, verses 1 and 2 for us. So Exodus chapter 19, page 76, under that heading at Mount Sinai. Verse 1 and 2 says this. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. So it's been three months since that great rescue from Egypt when God brought his people away from oppression and slavery through the Red Sea and into freedom. And it's been a ropey few months for the people. They've not shown great form. They've constantly been doubting God, not trusting him, even saying that they wish they were back in Egypt where he'd rescued them from. But God has persevered with them. He's showed them amazing mercy and kindness. And here they are. The question is, where are they? And there's something a little odd here. Did you notice at the end of verse 2? We're in uh, the desert of Sinai in front of the mountain. What mountain? I'm reliably informed that there are quite a few mountains in, in that region. Um, but we're told that they're in front of the mountain, as though we're supposed to know what the mountain is. <laughs> Flick back with me to Exodus uh, chapter 3. Page 59, uh, actually, yeah, page 59. While you're turning there, let me just um, explain where we are in the story uh, in chapter 3. So, so far in Exodus, what we've seen is um, the suffering of God's people. We've seen the order from Pharaoh for all the baby boys to be killed. We've seen Moses spared from that and brought up in the palace. We've seen him kill an Egyptian and flee to Midian and, and set up life for himself there as a shepherd. And then that brings us to chapter 3. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. 
So here we have Moses, up a mountain, with his sheep, doing whatever you do when you're looking after sheep. Uh, and then we get this extraordinary encounter. God appears to Moses there on the mountain in a bush that is on fire but not burning up. And God says some extraordinary things to Moses. Just look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land and so on. So God's heard the cry of his people who are suffering and he's going to rescue them. And not only that, he's going to use Moses to do that rescue. And look at verse 10 over the page. It says, so now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses can't believe it. But verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring my people? Uh, and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And then listen to this, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Did you hear that? What was the big sign that uh, God sent Moses, the sign that God is the one who would fulfill his promise, the sign that proves he is the one who would rescue the Israelites from their oppression, the sign was this, you will worship God on this mountain. And so as we've gone through Exodus, all the way through, what the question we should have been asking is this, it's when will they get to the mountain? Are they at the mountain yet? Is God who he said he is? Can he rescue the people? Is, can he do what he said he's going to do? And then you get to Exodus chapter 19, verse 2. Where it says, Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. They've made it. They are about to worship God. The God who they are about to meet on that mountain is the God who keeps his promises. And I think that's something that we need to hear. The Israelites, here in chapter 19, can see that now. They can see that God can keep his promises. And imagine what difference it would have made to them if they were confident throughout their story so far that God is a God who keeps his promises. When the plagues were kicking off around them, we can get through this because God keeps his promises. When they hear the mothers wailing because their firstborn sons have died. We can get through this because God keeps his promises. When they were on the edge of the Red Sea, watching the Egyptian army coming over the brow of the hill to attack them. We can get through this because God keeps his promises. When they're in the desert, without food, without water, we can get through this because God keeps his promises. Oftentimes they didn't believe that along the way. But even still, God kept his promises. God is a God who keeps his promises. And that is the God who wants to meet you today. And maybe that's something that you need to hear. Maybe you are in the desert right now. Unsure where God is or, or why he's letting you go through this. Maybe you're oppressed. Maybe everything around you presses in. You can't see how you'll face tomorrow. 
Maybe it's all just too much. Maybe you have questions swirling in your head about where God is, why he's allowed you to get yourself into this situation, how he can be real when life seems such a mess and so hard. And if that's where you're at, you need to see people of God camped at the mountain, the mountain of promise, the mountain that God said he would get them to, even though at times it looked like he never could do it. But God kept his promise to the Israelites. And he'll keep his promise to you too. That's the first thing we see in Exodus 19. We meet a God who keeps his promises. The second is this. We meet God after rescue. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God said this. He said, when you have brought people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And then in Exodus 19, uh, flick forward back to that if you haven't already, the same thing is described. It's beautiful language. Look with me um, from verse 3 of Exodus chapter 19. It says this. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you myself. Did you hear that? The goal of it all was always relationship. God in relationship with his people. I carried you on eagle's wings, God said, and brought you to myself. The goal was always relationship. And the route to that goal was rescue. Rescue from slavery for relationship with God. And nothing has changed. The story is the same throughout the Bible. And that story comes down through history to us in Hartlepool today. The God is relationship. The God who keeps his promises wants to swoop down like an eagle, wants to carry you on his wings to himself. He wants relationship with you. But first must come rescue. If you want to be in relationship with this promise-keeping God, first you must be rescued. But rescued from what? Well, for the Israelites, it was slavery. Slavery to the Egyptians. They were powerless to end their slavery. They needed a rescuer. And actually, it's the same for us. We, too, need rescue from slavery. The Bible describes all people through history as slaves. Slaves to sin. And what this means is that every single one of us is unable to break free from the grip of sin on our lives. It's the reason why we repeatedly do those things that we don't want to do. It's the reason why we have thoughts that we'd be ashamed for other people to know. It's the reason why we choose to live for ourselves and our own interests rather than for others or more importantly for God. We are slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. But there's good news. Just as God provided the means of rescue to the Israelites, Moses, he's done the same thing for us. 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the only person in history who was not in the grips of slavery to sin, 2,000 years ago, he hung on a Roman cross to pay the price for our sin. And then he rose from the dead. And he he poured out his spirit on us. 
If you're a Christian today, Jesus has paid the penalty for your sin. And he has broken the power that that sin has over you. He, he rescued you. You are no longer a slave. And he's given you his spirit, God within you, giving you the power to overcome your sinful nature so that, that you no longer have to give in to it. And so I have to ask the question, is that your story? Have you been rescued from slavery to sin? Because... If you want to meet God, if you want relationship with him, if you want to know him, then the only route to that is through rescue. The Bible makes that abundantly clear. If you are a Christian, then verse 3 of Exodus 19 is your story too. You have been carried on eagle's wings and brought to God. But if you've not yet taken your sin to him, if you've not yet confessed it to him, if you've, not, if you've not yet asked him for forgiveness, it's not yet your story, but it can be. You can even speak to him now in the quiet of your heart if you want to, and he will rescue you, and you can meet with him. That's the second thing we see. First, we meet a God who keeps his promises. Second, we meet a God, we meet God after rescue, and then here's the third thing. We meet God in marriage. We meet God in marriage. God promises rescue and then relationship. He achieves that rescue and then he brings the people to himself at the mountain. But what kind of relationship does he bring them to? There are all sorts of uh, facets to the way that God relates to his people. In the Bible, there's loads of different illustrations of it. It's the relationship of a king to his subjects. It's the relationship um, of a father to a son. It's the relationship of friends. But a picture that comes up over and over again throughout the Bible, right to the very end of the Bible, is this. The relationship between God and his people is a marriage relationship. And that's what we have here in Exodus 19. Marriage is a covenant, a binding agreement between two parties who make promises or vows to each other in love. In Exodus 19, God marries his people. This is clear in the way that um, this, this, this event is talked about in other parts of the Bible. Just um, flick forward with me to, to Jeremiah uh, chapter 2. Page 756 in the church Bible. Jeremiah chapter 2, page 756. And let me just read to you um, a couple of verses from that. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth. How, as a bride, you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through a land not sown. We've been brought to God in marriage. There's an odd command later on in our passage in Exodus, uh, where they, the people are told to abstain from sex in verse 15. And it feels a bit odd. Why does God ask that? God created sex. God celebrates sex um, when it takes place in the way he's designed. Sex isn't wrong, so why do they need to abstain from it? And I think it's to play into the symbolism of what's going on here. A marriage ceremony is taking place. 
The relationship God calls his people to is a marriage relationship. When we see a good marriage, try and think of a good marriage that you've seen in your head right now. When we see a good marriage, we see love expressed in marriage. And and, and when we see the most beautiful and and tender and close and, and devoted realities in a good marriage, it's meant to be for us a glimpse into the kind of relationship that is ours when we are rescued and brought into relationship with God. And that's why such lovely language is used in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 19. Click back there again, page 76. Sorry, we're a bit here, there, and everywhere today. Um, Verse 5 and 6 says this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Treasured possession. In 1 Peter, um, the same language is picked up um, and used for the church. Let me read it to you. Don't need to turn there. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. If you've been rescued by God and brought into relationship with God, then that relationship that you've been brought into is a marriage relationship. You are his special possession. You are his treasure. He sees you as his treasure. And so I have to ask, Do you believe that? I suspect many of us have lost sight of it. We are more conscious of the ways that we fail than we are of how God views us. We don't really believe that God thinks of us as his treasure. If anything, we think he's a bit disappointed in us. Who is God? And how do we meet with him? He is the God who rescues us, who brings us into an intimate marriage relationship and who views us as his treasure. Perhaps that's something you need to hear this afternoon. But I reckon some of us are hearing this and thinking, wait a minute, what about that bit in verse 5? Where it says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then you will be my treasured possession. Here's what I think we need to realise with this. We need to think about the order of what went on here. And the the important thing to see is the rescue came first. The people were rescued and brought to God before any obedience was required. It wasn't conditional. It was the same then as it is now. To become a Christian, to be rescued by God, is not dependent on what we do. It's not dependent on our obedience. It's dependent on his grace. But when we're brought to him, as with all marriage relationships, come promises or vows for richer, poorer, and so on. And the marriage between Israel and God is no different. God rescues the people, he brings them to himself, and then he calls them to obedience. Why? Well, he does it actually for the sake of the nations around. Did you notice that? Their obedience is so that they could be a kingdom of priests. What was the role of a priest? The the role of a priest was to mediate between God and people. 
They were to be a kingdom of priests, all of them priests, giving other nations the opportunity to come to God. That's why they were called to obey. And they were to be a holy nation. Holy just means set apart, different, distinctive. Why? So that the watching world would look on and see something extraordinary as they live in the way that God intended them to live. And the same is true for us. Remember that verse that we read in 1 Peter? It says this, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. The same is true for us. Our rescue, our, our um, salvation is not conditional on our obedience. The rescue comes first. But when we're brought into this marriage relationship with God, we are called obedience Jesus said this to his followers in John 15 he said as the father has loved me so have I loved you now remain in my love if you keep my commands you will remain in my love just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love as as God's people we have the privilege of rescue we have the the privilege privilege of relationship with God and with those privileges comes the responsibility the honor really of living lives of obedience because that was our wedding vow and so we've seen that we meet a god who keeps his promises we've seen that we meet god after rescue and we meet god in marriage and those first few verses of the chapter there that we've read all feel fairly kind of inviting and, and comfortable and warm don't they and then it all seems to blow up in the chapter um, so the fourth thing I want us to see is this. We meet God in awe. Let's pick up the story from verse 7. It says this. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together. We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought that answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. Now just as an aside, um, before we think about this idea of meeting God in awe, what God is doing here um, is he's kind of laying the ground for his people for how he's always going to communicate with them, speaking with them through an approved mediator, one person who will reliably bring them the word of God. You see it all the way through the Old Testament, through Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and so on. And you see it ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. God speaking authoritatively to his people through one person, ultimately through Jesus. The groundwork for that is laid in these verses. But let's keep going, um, because this is where it starts kicking off. Verse 10. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever, will, whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No person or animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. 
after Moses had gone down to the mountain, gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of, the mount of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourselves warned us, put limits around the mountain and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, go down and bring Aaron up with you. But the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Just imagine what it would have been like to have been there. All that kind of preparation you were doing, the, the cleaning uh, and so on, all telling you something big is about to happen. Those limits being set up around the mountain. Being told that if you cross this line, you will die. Stay away until you hear the ram's horn. And then the moment comes. The, the cloud first. And then the thunder, the lightning, the trumpet blast getting louder and louder than the fire and the smoke as God comes down and the whole mountain trembles and the people tremble. The, the sound, the, the spectacle of it must have been awe-inspiring. And the point of it all is this. God is not to be trifled with. God is a, a perfect God, completely pure, completely holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. His purity means that if he comes into the presence of a sinful human, he expunges it. And so, let me ask you a question. Does your God do this? Does your God make mountains and people tremble? Because this isn't a one-off. Throughout the Bible, when people come into the presence of God, they fall on their face. They often die. Who is God? That was the question we asked at the beginning. If the God that you worship isn't like this, then you're not worshipping the true God. We can't get away with saying that, well, this is the God of the Old Testament, and now he's different. God is unchanging. He remains this God. He is just as awe-inspiring today. He remains just as pure. And yet, and yet, when we come to this God, 
this awe-inspiring, mountain-trembling, descending in fire God, our experience is different. We don't come to the same mountain. That leads us to our last point. We meet God because of Jesus. We meet God because of Jesus. Turn with me, last time I think, to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, page um, 1211 in the church Bibles. Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to read from verse 18. It says this. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word would be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. You have not come to this mountain. That's what it said. You have not come to this mountain. Why not? Verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Because of Jesus, we come to a different mountain. You see, remember back in verse 8 of Exodus chapter 19, the people, God asked them to obey him and the people promised to keep their vows to God. But even as we read it, we knew they never would. They wouldn't obey God. They haven't even been able to do it since seeing God do the plagues and part the sea. They won't start now. And they didn't start then. They were covenant breakers. But then along came Jesus, the perfect person of God. Along came Jesus, who kept the covenant vows, the marriage vows, perfectly. And then he died for covenant breakers. He took the curse of death owed to those who disobey the covenant so that we could receive the blessings of the covenant. He sprinkled us with his blood, not literally but figuratively. He, he cleansed us. He made us pure, just like he is pure. So that now we can approach the mountain. That's who God is. We see him in Jesus. In Exodus 19, the, the people were married to God, yes. But they had to stay away because they were still sinful. But if you're a Christian here today, if you've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, then your sin is dealt with. You have been given his purity. And so now when you're married to God, you can, you can approach the mountain. Better than that, you can approach Mount Zion, heaven itself. Through Jesus, you have full and full free access to the throne room of heaven. You can even call God Father. So who is God and how do we meet him? 
God is the God we see in Exodus 19. He is the pure, awe-inspiring, coming down in fire, mountain-trembling God. We should look at him with awe and reverence. And we should worship him because we get to meet him. We get to come to him with confidence, security, freedom, coming right up to his throne as, and call him Father, all because of Jesus. Let me close with those words from Hebrews chapter 12 again. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let me pray.